This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show for you today on episode number 525. We're going to welcome Dr. Joe Spurgeon. Uh, Dr. Spurgeon is going to talk about, uh, we're going to answer a question today. Can airborne mold samples be interpreted objectively using numerical guidelines? It's um, an answer that he'll give us today and in his upcoming book and a paper we just uh, had him speak to us about on the at the Healthy Building Summit 2018. Great, great presentation. Check us out on Facebook and YouTube. Leave a comment if you would. You can subscribe to us. You can subscribe to our uh, show announcement on iaqradio.com. And of course, we have continuing education credits if you email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Okay, uh, let's Let's uh, first thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or, if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to IQ Radio today. Congratulations go out to Vic Cafaro in Richmond, Virginia, for identifying New York City as the location of the world's first electric power plant. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, November 30th, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the Hollywood celebrity who added a fake 11th finger to his handprint at Los Angeles' famous TCL Chinese Theater. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thanks, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Joe Spurgeon. Uh, Joe is a, uh, I'm going to call it semi-retired Joe because you're still writing and doing a lot of research uh, with Bayshore Environmental. He uh, has a long history of working in both the federal government and private practice doing mold inspection and uh, consulting work, uh, indoor air quality, and uh, we, we always enjoy having Joe join us. He's also an author. We're going to talk a little bit about a couple of his books. So uh, let's get Joe on the line here. John? Hello, Joe. Do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. It's so good to get you back on the show, Joe. I didn't I didn't realize. I thought you were on more than once before, but I guess, I guess it's just once. Uh, but anyway... Uh- the last time we talked, we, we were talking about your book. John, let's start the, the PowerPoint on this because we're doing both uh, audio and video for folks. Um, today we're talking about 
interpreting objectively mold samples using numerical guidelines. Let's go to the next one, John. But in the past, Joe, um, we talked a little bit about your book, The Collection and Interpretation of Indoor Mold Samples, and some of the questions. I just wondered if you could tell listeners a little bit about that book. Yeah, I kind of put the topics up on the screen. This is more or less discusses uh, the various methods that you can use to collect and interpret indoor mold samples. And it basically gives a comparison between the methods and gives you the pros and cons of, of the various methods. For example, uh, on the cover, there's four methods illustrated to uh, sample carpet dust. So which one is, would you prefer if you had the specific objective? And it also talks about some of the limitations of um, the laboratory methods in, included with the analysis. Okay, John, let's go to the next one. All right. Now, you also had another, this is kind of more like a workbook here, Joe, on interpreting mold samples. Um, Talk a little bit about why you thought this one was important. Yeah, uh, as an expert witness, I review a lot of uh, reports. A lot of them come across my desk, and uh, I, I see some areas that could be improved. For example, most uh, inspectors interpret their results directly from the laboratory reports. And in this book, what I'm trying to discuss is uh, transferring the data to data tables in the report. Uh, to look at concentration gradients, to look at rank order analysis, uh, in order to look for patterns in the data and interpret them uh, a little bit more precisely, and also how uh, what you should look for for correlations between sample types. For example, uh, look at what's on the air return, the air supply, carpet dust, settled dust, etc., and see if there's any patterns that you can backtrack to potential sources. So a little bit different focus on this book. It is, and, and um, I think they kind of work well together, though, don't they? Yeah, one gives you the methods, and one talks more about uh, writing the report and interpreting the data. And then a new one, uh, the next book should be coming out in December on basically uh, interpreting airborne samples, samples more specifically, basically what we're talking about today. Okay. John, you want to shoot to the next one? All right. Well, before we get into um, details on sampling, let's just review with folks because I don't want people to think that's all we're focused on is just mold sampling. Um, the elements of a mold inspection. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of each of these different elements, Joe? Yeah, I mean, a, a mold inspection is uh, composed of all of these elements. Uh, you certainly want to take a good incident history. You want to, after you get your incident history, I normally do a visual inspection. And once I've looked at the facility, I come up with a sampling plan and uh, plan what I'm going to be doing as far as sample collection and, and sampling rationale. You also might want to talk to uh, occupants about uh, any potential issues they have. And uh, eventually you might work yourself into a forensic investigation. So as indicated, sampling is just one small part of the inspection, but I think it's very important. If, in my experience, if you do not sample, then you're missing uh, some portion of the uh, problem uh, structures. You know, I've gone back and forth on this, Joe, and I, I just had a case here recently where, you know, it's pretty obvious what the issue was, but the someone prior had done some sampling, and the, the sample results did help me, at least in prioritizing what areas to do first, second, third, and, and how quickly to work. So, you know, I think it's a, an important piece of the puzzle if you can get, you know, the, I guess the tough part is um, – having clients that can afford to do 
the type of sampling that may be necessary. Have you run into problems with that? Do you have any tips for inspectors that do? Well, no, you always work within the client's budget. Uh, all you can do is propose, and what I normally do is propose a rather complete uh, inspection protocol. Uh, I try to put that in writing or at least document it so at least I'm protected legally. And then you let the client choose from that protocol as, as you would at a menu in a restaurant. Uh, whatever they want to pay for, whatever they want to do, I'll, I'll certainly do it. But uh, I want to also give them my perspective on what should be done and then do what they want done. Well, and you mentioned something in there within that answer that I think leads to probably your next book or at least uh, your next training program. Um, it seems like you, you offer that menu in part to ensure that you are covered legally. Is that accurate to say? Well, when people call me for advice or something, that's one thing I, uh, I normally tell them to do. Yes, uh, if I propose in writing or at least somehow document what I think should be done, if the client doesn't want to do it, I'm covered. Uh, I can always go back and say, look, it's not, it wasn't negligence on my part. I proposed it. They didn't accept it. Uh, that's their problem. We only did what they were willing to accept. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. I think that's great advice for our, our inspectors out there. Um, all right. Let's, let's move to the next slide. All right. Assessing condition. Um, let's talk a little bit about this. It's a fact, Joe. Yeah, uh, my perspective is, uh, you know, assessments are based on the interpretation of laboratory reports, and most laboratory reports uh, contain numerical data, uh, for example, spores per cubic meter. And in my opinion, numerical sample results cannot be interpreted uh, objectively or consistently without reference to numerical guidelines of some sort. And those have been hard to come by, haven't they? Uh, very hard to come by. Most of them have been withdrawn uh, because I don't think they were really based on, on an appropriate methodology to, to assess. So, and John, go to the next slide, if you would. I'm not sure if it's on this one or not. But, um, yeah, we at some point, Joe, we ought to talk maybe about the three sampling methods real quick um, that you've outlined in the past. There, I have the Madonna's, the reference method, the control method, and the database method. But, you know, you, you tell us, uh, listeners, what you mean by those different methods. Yes, reference method is, is typically what we uh, most inspectors use. It's indoor-outdoor comparisons. So you take an indoor sample, outdoor sample, compare the results. A control method is very similar, um, maybe more useful in commercial properties, but you're comparing... Um, a potentially contaminated area to an uncontaminated area, either in the same building or a similar building. And the database method is you're comparing your current sample results to a collection of previous sample results. So you're looking at what's normally present in this type of environment and comparing the current sample results and see if they're typical or not typical. Perfect. So we've got three options and uh let's let's go over this slide in front of us now joe the, the primary task of air sampling i think this kind of sets the table and then we'll go right into your current work yeah again just following up on the previous slide just uh, i think one of our tasks is to differentiate between normal and contaminated indoor air 
uh, not just to detect mold, but is, is the mold a problem? And for that, most of us are going to be using a laboratory report. And interpreting a lab report requires the use of guidelines and decision criteria. And those guidelines can be either, number one, professional judgment, either historical usage like indoor-outdoor comparisons, or a lot of inspectors I found in teaching my courses have their own personal guidelines that they use. We don't talk about them, but they're in the back of our mind, and that's how we use them, uh, use them to interpret the lab report. Or the second approach uh, is to use actual, stated, discrete numerical guidelines. For example, dust mite allergen uh, limits, ERMI scores, and detection techs uh, Instascope are examples of those. Okay. Okay. Joe, let's, I got a text question, which is kind of, it, it sits right in here. Zephon's, Zephon's trifold guide that comes with most orders of aerosol recommends 10 minutes sampling outside at 15 liters per minute, five minutes sample inside for most situations. Have you concerns if an investigator does not follow the manufacturer's guidelines if the sampling results are to be used in a courtroom? Yes. Uh, in my experience, I've been involved in court cases where the data has not been allowed to be entered into the case because the manufacturer's guidelines were not followed. Uh, those specific instances are typically with wall cavity samples, for example. Okay. Uh, instead of sampling at 15 liters a minute, someone will sample at 5 liters a minute, or they'll sample for 30 seconds. And that gets them into trouble because there are no guidelines for that. And I, I think it's a good point to clarify, too, Joe. I don't think you're saying we should not do any outdoor samples. Um, can you clarify that for us? Oh, yeah. I always uh, I, I take outdoor samples, uh, especially if it's in an area, a geographical area I'm not familiar with. I want to see what's present. But there's a difference between taking outdoor samples and having it archived and using the information and directly using that information to interpret your sample results. Uh, I collect outdoor samples. Uh, they're in my report, but when it comes to interpreting the actual sample results and the condition of the indoor air, I tend not to focus on that. Okay. Let's go to the next one, John. All right. Uh, your opinions on I – I think we kind of went over this, but maybe we could review it real quick. Opinions on indoor-outdoor comparisons. Yeah, and this is uh, basically, I'm stating my biases. Uh, to me, indoor-outdoor comparisons really don't work for interpreting sample results or assessing condition. And the reasons I give is that they don't indicate the significance of the sample result. It doesn't tell you whether that specific concentration is high, low, or average for that environment. Uh, the method uh, really can't be applied consistently either across projects for the same inspector or between inspectors. Uh, we're relying on an unstable basis for assessment because the outdoor air is highly variable, and we'll give an example uh, coming up about that. And they're really difficult to use in special use spaces like uh, containments or hospital uh, operating rooms, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's, uh, Cliff, I think you've got a follow-up you wanted to get in there. Yeah, I do, Joe. Um, you know, the one thing that I never really thought about until today and, you know, you know, preparing for today's interview is what happens, what does the lab do with the cassettes and, uh, you know, other sampling tools that are submitted to them for analysis? 
Uh, did they just throw them away after use so that, you know, if someone wanted to double check or, you know, get access to that and, and re-examine it, is it possible or do the labs just dispose of the stuff? Uh, you would have to talk to each individual lab. Uh, some of them archive the, uh, the slides, the samples that can be archived. Some labs archive them for 30 days or some period of time. But you need to talk to your laboratory and, and ask them about that. What you have their, a recommendation? Uh, is. What, 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 no, I don't have, no, that's a laboratory question. I wouldn't uh, okay. uh, give them advice on that. Okay. Okay, let's look at this next slide, Joe. We were talking about indoor-outdoor comparisons, and um, you're, you're stating that this is a fact. They, they lack significance, consistency, and stability. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this particular uh, slide here? Yeah, the, uh, this is uh, actual data, and it was uh, taken over four days, so almost a week-long period here. And, for example, the indoor samples uh, were between, let's say, 500 and 1,000 spores per cubic meter. Let's call it an average of 750 spores per cubic meter. Uh, if you do an indoor-outdoor comparison, it doesn't tell you the significance of 750 spores per cubic meter. Is that a typical concentration? Is it elevated? Is it low? What is it? So there's no significance. Gotcha. As far as consistency, uh, if you put five inspectors and say, look, the concentration of Aspen spores I just sampled was 2,000 spores per cubic meter, what's the significance of that result? They're not going to agree. Some are going to say it's acceptable. Some are going to say, no, it's elevated. There's no agreement. There's no consistency. And, and stability, there's, I'm sorry? <laughs> I was going to say it depends. <laughs> it depends. It always depends. But stability, this is a, a real example here. Uh, for example, if for all four days, if we took our outdoor sample in the morning, uh, the conditions indoors were acceptable based on indoor-outdoor comparisons. If we took our samples in the afternoon around 4 p.m., they were all unacceptable. So if you have a method of interpreting your data that's just not stable, that doesn't give you the same assessment with very little variation on the indoor concentration, I don't see that as being an acceptable method. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Okay, this is just a, an example of uh, a type of sampling and most people, well, many listeners are familiar with the Instascope, uh, but why do you have this one in there, Joe? Well, the next slide, I think, is what we want to go to, and we can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Instascope uh, is just an example of a new emerging technology that is characterized by what I call SOX. Uh, and this is significance, objectivity, consistency, and stability. So the Instascope gives us the significance of the result. Uh, it's basically green, yellow, red, whatever. Uh, it's an objective criterion. We don't come up with that criterion. The instrument does. And so it's consistent between projects and between inspectors. And the blue line on this graph is the, for example, represents the distribution that's used to uh, come up with the criterion, and it's stable. It doesn't change from project to project or inspector to inspector. So this is a new emerging technology that uh, satisfies the SOX criteria. And that this is an expensive technology, obviously. We've done shows on it. Uh, very interesting. Many people can't necessarily afford this, but I think 
the point you're making here as we go down this, the road on this is socks is important to whatever type of sampling you do. And you're going to help show people how to use these, uh, the method that you're talking about, which is more of a, a numerical or database method, um, and still provide socks. Is that accurate to say? Yes, it's basically the poor man's version of what we're looking at right here. Beautiful. So it's a very simple, inexpensive way of coming up with your own uh, reproducible method. That's perfect. You said it much better than me. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> All right. Current status of air sampling. It's, your thought is that it's subjective, inconsistent assessments. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this, Joe. Yeah, uh, basically, if you're using indoor-outdoor comparisons, and that's what almost everyone uses, uh, in my opinion, it leads to uh, subjective inconsistent assessments uh, or no interpretation at all. As an expert witness, I review many reports from different uh, consultants, different inspectors, and that's not unusual at all to see a report that's simply the laboratory report with a cover page on it. There's no interpretation at all because they're afraid to interpret it because there's no guidelines. Uh, when I've taught my sampling course at the IAQA uh, conferences, for example, I typically try to ask a question, when does indoor ass pen spores become a problem? And what I'm showing here is kind of a generic summary of, of the responses. 10% of the students will tell me that uh, 300 spores per cubic meter of ass pen is a potential problem. Most uh, of the students are going to tell me somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 spores uh, per cubic meter, it becomes a problem. But we have to recognize that this is still a tenfold range, a very wide range. Sure. And some individuals tell me even 30,000 spores per cubic meter are not a problem. Hmm. So what we have is a sick individual with 30,000 spores per cubic meter in his house, and the consultant is telling them, there's no problem at your imagination. And we have a young single mother who's trying to make a living who has to come up with the money to remediate uh, her property because there's 300 spores per cubic meter in her property. So it's very inconsistent. Tremendous. And the professional judgment, just in this example, varies over at least two orders of magnitude. Wow. Okay. Um, let's go to the next one. Yeah. And by the way, for those of you texting in questions, I'm going to try and get to these uh, right before halftime and then again at the roundup so that we don't, and uh, interrupt the flow of this particular presentation. All right, so the purpose today is to propose a distribution method as an alternative to these indoor-outdoor comparisons and to show that the method supports numerical guidelines. Um, anything you'd like to add on that, Joe? Well, just uh, to demonstrate the use of those numerical guidelines and for interpreting airborne samples and assessing condition of the indoor air. Uh, I specifically focused on slit impaction cassettes and samples collected in residential spaces just to make it uh, hand, you know, more handled. And I assume that's also in part because this is probably the most common way that home inspectors, mold inspectors, and, and many, uh, you know, even industrial hygienists uh, commonly use slit impaction cassettes to do these types of assessments. 
Yeah, I think we have a slide coming up on that. But yes, um, 80, 80 to 90 percent of uh, all those samples, airborne samples com uh, submitted to the laboratories, uh, I've been reported as are basically slid and passion cassette samples. Okay. So if you don't have a method based on slid and passion cassettes, it's not very applicable. Very good. Let's go next. All right. The distribution method. Let's talk about what that is, Joe. Yeah, it's, it's rather simple. It may sound complex, uh, but it's basically assessing the condition of the indoor air or, or any sample um, matrix based on a number of similar samples that the inspector has collected. Uh, for example, the sample results already in your file cabinet. And, and instead, looking at a distribution of samples rather than individual samples to interpret the results. Okay. So you're actually kind of using other homes, other buildings that you've worked in to help you with the current one. Yeah, you're comparing the, uh, the current uh, indoor air that you're sampling to basically a number of previous structures that you've sampled. And, and so I you're getting a relative comparison. You're also giving yourself a, a leg to stand on if you ever go to court. Yeah, instead of uh, taking one sample and saying, I just have one sample result, if you've included that sample with 99 previous samples, then you have 100 samples that you're using to interpret your results. You know, that's yeah. something I, I wrestled with that for years, Joe, and now, you know, it makes a lot more sense to me. I, I understand what you're saying. I always, you know, because people always ask, how many samples do you need to take to get a statistically valid <laughs> sampling set and so forth? Um, you know, and, and oftentimes we can't afford to take you know, 25, 30 samples on a project. So I love the way you put that. Yeah. Okay. Next one, John. All right, here we go. What is a distribution of concentrations? Now we get down into the weeds just a little bit. I think you've broken it out in a way that will help people understand. Yeah, it's just, uh, for example, if you've collected uh, five uh, samples uh, from a property, and on the right-hand side, we have the concentration. You simply list them in rank order from the lowest concentration to the highest concentration. And it's, it's really very simple. Uh, one sample out of five represents 20% of the total number of samples collected. So the first sample is the 20th percentile concentration. If you look at all four samples, for example, four of the samples were less than 350 spores per cubic meter in this example. So the 80th percentile concentration would be 350 spores per cubic meter. And that's as difficult as it is. So rank order on your left-hand column, concentration on your right-hand column, and the percentage. So percentage versus concentration is your distribution. You know, I, I, And that's all it is. I have a dream, Joe, if, if everybody listening could do this with their samples and then we could collect it all, we'd have that huge uh, you know, number of people out there and a, a real nice way of looking at all these distributions. Would that make sense? Well, yeah. We're gonna, I'm going to be talking about some 650 samples uh, today, and I didn't collect any of those samples. I had... Uh, two inspectors cooperate with me and submit their samples to me, and I did the analysis. But I didn't collect any of these samples. 
All right, let's go to one more slide. Then I've got a couple, I think, quick text questions, and then we'll break for halftime. Cliff, sound good to you? Sounds good, Joe. All right. Distribution. So now you're looking at uh, the distribution of the concentrations, Joe. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about this? Yeah, well, this is this is the same thing as the previous slide, except uh, just instead of looking at just five samples, here we're looking at uh, 600 or well, 450 samples, actually. Uh, by doing this, you can I can tell you that 55% of the samples were less than a thousand spores per cubic meter. 85% of the samples were less than 10,000 spores per cubic meter. And as I say, this is very interesting, but it's not very useful. It doesn't tell you anything. It tells you a little bit, but it doesn't help you assess condition. But if we go to the next slide, then I think we can see where it's beginning to make sense. John? Here we go. Uh, so here we have a situation where we've inserted what I call decision criteria uh, onto the distribution. Now it starts making sense. If I can tell you that 750 spores per cubic meter of aspen or less is representative of a typical indoor air, and that aspen concentrations greater than 1,500 spores per cubic meter are representative of contaminated air, then we can start making decisions on the condition of the next property that we inspect. And this, these data are not based on my personal biases uh, or experience. They're given to me by the data itself. The curve, the blue line, defines the data, and the criteria is defined by the data. So once we overlay a decision criterion on top of the distribution, we can start assessing the condition of the indoor air. So in, in essence, what you've done here is sort of like what Instascope has done to some degree. You've got a green, yellow, and red set up right here based on this particular set of samples. Yeah, that's kind of the reverse. I think the Instascope is based uh, on the distributions that uh, I've been proposing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's do a real quick one before we go to a break. I had a couple texts. Uh, Let's see, is it worth sampling with aerosols outdoors in the wintertime with temperature near or below freezing? Well, again, you'd have to ask the manufacturer, but that's an aqueous gel. And if the gel gets very cold or begins to freeze, then the collection efficiency is going to be reduced. Okay. And if you're doing indoor-outdoor comparisons real quick, uh, you, you take five minutes indoors. Someone asked, would it, would it not make sense to do the same with your outdoor sample for consistency? Yeah, any sample time below about 30 minutes uh, can can be compared. For example, you can compare five-minute samples with five-minute samples or five-minute samples with 10-minute samples. It doesn't make any difference. Okay. So whatever your preference would be. All right. Well, let's go to halftime, John. I've got a couple more I didn't get to yet, Joe, but we'll, we'll try and get to those at the roundup. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. 
and AEML Laboratories. Free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Joe Spurgeon on the line. And uh, Cliff, before I go back to the uh, PowerPoints, was there anything you wanted to ask or add? Uh, No, I'm good, Joe. Thanks. Beautiful. John, let's go back to where we left off, and uh, we'll get Dr. Joe back on the line. All right, so we we did this particular slide, I think, and now let's move to the next one. Yeah, okay. So... Two databases, the national data were used. Let's tell us about this one, John. All right, Joe. Yeah, again, I used two databases. What I call the national data uh, were used to assess building-related contamination, and they were submitted by uh, Dan Bridge. And the California data uh, were used to assess ASPEN concentrations uh, in reference to oxygen exposure potential, and they were submitted by uh, Jack Clausen, basically of Trabuco Canyon, but also, I think, recently um, relocated to North Carolina. Okay. Next, John. All right. So let's, let's tell people a little bit about these two sets of uh, data, Joe. Yeah, these were not uh, small sets of data. Uh, the national data is 450 indoor samples and 235 outdoor samples uh, collected in 117 uh, properties in 23 cities and nine states, and they were uh, across seasons, climate zones, personnel, etc. Uh, the California data uh, were collected uh, 204 indoor samples in 88 properties in Southern California. Uh, the national data were not characterized by indoor condition, but the California data were. They were characterized by uh, presence or absence of water damage, health complaints, uh, and visible mold. So these are rather extensive uh, sample databases. Next one, John. Okay, so the applicability of the conclusions, Joe. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, in in my opinion, these databases are what I would describe as robust, uh, statistically robust, and that is there's a large number of samples, 450 samples is a large amount. You combine the two and you've got 654 samples. So the conclusions derived from these data, um, in my opinion, are probably generally applicable uh, to to, uh, residential properties in general. So uh, I think the results uh, apply to more than just these 650 samples. You know, I love the way you say, in my opinion, because, Joe, I tried. (laughs) I can't get anybody to shoot this down. I mean, and I know you've tried, and um, we don't get too many comments back, so... Put it out there for listeners. I mean, you know, if you don't agree with the the conclusions here, let us know and let us know why. I mean, Joe's always looking for good feedback. Am I wrong there, Joe? 
No, let me, uh, for example, the database method, I was taught the database method in 1970 as a second-year graduate student, and it was a well-developed methodology by then. So this is a very commonly uh, uh, applied methodology in the environmental sciences. It's just that we don't use them in mold inspections. But this is not my idea. It's just something I was taught, you know, many, many, many years ago. <laughs> and it, it, it applies to other types of contaminants as well. I mean, at, at that time, you weren't talking about mold, I'm sure. Well, no, the, the first book we reference in the presentation, I, just, I apply the same methodology to uh, wall cavity samples, carpet dust samples, soft surface samples, uh, any type of environmental sample. I've applied it to wildfire smoke. It's the same methodology. Fantastic, Joe. Next. All right. So we, I think we talked about this, why slit impaction, but go ahead, give them the numbers, Joe. Well, I just did a very informal uh, phone survey of two labs in uh, 2016, and again, 85 to 90 percent of the airborne samples submitted for analysis were sudden passion cassettes. Uh, the data in this presentation are specifically for aerosol samples. That's not a recommendation of aerosols. It's just the uh, individuals collecting the samples used aerosols, and that was the available data. Okay. Um, and uh, let's go to the next one. How were the numerical guidelines established? Yeah, I focused on uh, aspen-like spores, number one. And number two, I used uh, transitional concentrations to, uh, to establish the numerical guidelines for interpreting the sample results. And then the next two slides, uh, I'll explain those concepts. John? Okay. All right, so, uh, so if we look at the data, uh, Again, this is 650 samples if you look at the average, and obviously total spores were detected in 100% of the samples. But ASPEN, which is a contaminant spore, was detected in 86% of the samples. Now, I could have used Stachybotrys also, but Stachybotrys was only detected in 17% of the samples. So if you want a generally applicable method, uh, ASPEN spores are a lot better to use than, than Stachybotrys, for example, for establishing guidelines. Yeah. more usable. And what about the cladosporium? It was in 84%. Yeah, I've got, I've got guidelines for cladosporium and total spores. And when we get to those slides, I'll indicate to you why Aspen is still a better choice. Okay, next. Here we go. All right, and here's the uh, what I'm talking about when I say transitional concentration. This is just the rank order of 424 indoor ASPEN samples. And you can see a break in the curve at about 1,000 spores per cubic meter. And so the 1,000 spores per cubic meter is what I call the transitional concentration. It's basically transitioning between two distributions of, of samples. Uh, the lower concentrations are more typically of normal air, and the higher concentrations more typically of contaminated air. And, it, and a plot like this gives us the transition point, which is approximately 1,000 spores per cubic meter for aspen. And this is the same type of graph that I used for cladosporium or total spores, or you could use for stachybotrys if you wanted, or any type of spore. Okay, next. Assessing building related. Okay, so numerical guidelines. Joe, go ahead. Yeah, uh, it, as 
from my perspective, an inspector does basically two things. We can either assess building-related contamination or we, and or we can assess occupant exposure potential. And what's the difference? Well, if you're looking at an air delivery system, if you're looking at building-related contamination, you're going to inspect the cooling coil. If you're assessing occupant exposure potential, you're going to sample the air supply duct. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So basically what I'm talking about in this section is looking at building-related contamination. And I think this next slide, we'll get into that in a little more detail. Go ahead, John. Yeah, again, this is just the uh, the distribution uh, using the aerosol cassette sample for indoor aspen spores. These are 376 uh, samples, and it just gives you the, uh, the decision criteria. It gives you the transitional concentrations. So concentrations less than 750 spores per cubic meter were associated with uh, normal uh, indoor air, and concentrations above 1,500 spores per cubic meter were associated with uh, potentially contaminated air, and the way we can tell the difference is the change in the slope of the graph. And in between those two numbers, 750 to 1500, we can say is kind of like a yellow light? Well, that's professional judgment. That's a yellow light or use professional judgment. How consistent is this result with the rest of the samples or your general inspection or incident history? Yeah. Okay. All right. Next. And uh, let me emphasize, let me emphasize, we're assessing the sample result, not the condition of the indoor environment. We're just trying to interpret the sample result. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, that's because this is, again, a small part of the overall inspection. Sure. Okay. Next. All right. This is, uh, I'm not sure, John. This is aspect. Yeah, this is Aspen spores, the same plot, except this was uh, these samples were collected with Allergenco D cassettes oh, instead okay. of uh, aerosol cassettes. So the only difference, basically, we still come up with a break point of about 1,500 spores per cubic meter, but the break is a little bit sharper. There's not as much uh, of an uncertainty range. That's interesting. Is so, that, and this was the same. Go ahead. I'm just wondering if that's because of the collection efficiency, or is that just? Yeah, the, the, the Allergenco D was developed uh, a number of years later than the aerosol, so it's a little bit, maybe has a little bit better design, uh, has a little bit better collection efficiency, uh, a little bit sharper break point. Those Aspen yeah. size spores. Yeah. Okay. Next. All right. So here's the guidelines for assessing building-related contamination. Joe? This is kind of the meat and potatoes here. Let's uh, have you go through this. Yeah, so this is, uh, these are the data for Aspen, Cladosporium, and total spores. So as we were talking, um, Aspen concentrations less than 750 are typical of normal indoor air, greater than 1,500, uh, typical of contam potentially contaminated indoor air. Uh, and Cladosporium, I'll give you the range on that, and for total spores. Now, this is what we were talking about. Why would you prefer to use Aspen rather than total spores? The, the professional judgment, the range for professional judgment for Aspen, the difference between 750 and 1500 is 750 spores per cubic meter. Okay. If you look at total spores, the difference between the two ranges is 5,500 spores per cubic meter. So a lot more precise uh, assessment of condition using Aspen versus Cladosporium or total spores. Interesting. So, is a real common this, indoor contaminant too. Very common, but it gives you very a little bit more precise assessments. 
Gotcha. Now, if we look at the comparison between uh, Allergenco and, and Aerosol, the upper range for the Aerosol is basically the same thing as the contaminated range for the Allergenco D. So my point on the data table to the, to the right uh, of the Allergenco D data is this. We have seven, 650 samples. We have from two different databases, the national and California data. We have it for Aerosol and Allergenco D cassettes and we still come up with the same numbers. So it's a self-consistent assessment. That's part of Across science, sample right? types, that's well because of, well, yes, <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> All right, very nice, Joe. Next. Okay, uh, part six of your presentation was on assessing occupant exposure. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, here we have, uh, I'm talking about what I call the California data. This is a 204 samples. And uh, Jack Clawson characterized the indoor spaces as to whether or not there was water damage, health complaints, or visible mold. So we can start looking at these various conditions and how the concentrations of ASP10 would vary in these uh, conditions. Okay, next, John. Joe. Okay, here's just the uh, California data. Uh, um, of the 204 samples, we had 46 samples uh, where water uh, damage was not detected in the property, 94 samples where water damage was detected. We have properties with and without health complaints and, and visible mold detected. So what we're looking at is, and asking the question, what were the effects of these factors on occupant exposure potential? And that's what I'm looking at in this section. Okay, John? Yeah, this is the bioaerosols assessment and control. It was published by ACGIH in 1999. I think a lot of us are familiar with it. And they advise reporting both average and worst, uh, worst case occupant exposures. And my point is that uh, these parameters are not provided by indoor-outdoor comparisons, and both of them are provided by the distribution method. So just another... Um, argument for using the distribution method over indoor-outdoor comparisons. And it's not that the ACGIH didn't talk about indoor-outdoor comparisons. They did have something on that in the, in the, uh, in the book. You just go back one, if you would, John. I think uh, you're just pointing out that the method that you're proposing here uh, probably does a little better job than, than the indoor-outdoor comparison. Well, if, if the ACGIH book, uh, when they talk about indoor-outdoor comparisons, they're talking about, if you read it, <laughs> commercial properties. And, for example, I've been at a commercial property for uh, eight months uh, working on it. And, yes, I certainly used indoor-outdoor comparisons, but I had hundreds and hundreds of samples in each distribution. What they're basically saying is – it's you can't they didn't recommend transferring that methodology to residential inspections where you've got two or three samples hmm. interesting cliff did you have a follow-up yeah i i did joe um you know since you've been following this for for so long and, and been involved in it who or what organization is the source for this indoor outdoor comparison 
Good question, Cliff. Uh, well, I don't know the organization. I think it's this um, microbiologists in general uh, propose that methodology. I think it was uh, but you have to understand that when this when this started, uh, most microbiologists were environmental microbiologists, if you want to characterize it that way. Yeah. They weren't indoor air quality specialists. So I think it was just, well, let's try this. We don't have anything else. Let's try this method. Right. I don't yeah. think there was any uh, established methodology that supported it. I think it was somewhat reinforced, though, Joe, with the EPA mold in schools and commercial buildings. Uh, oh, absolutely. But they didn't. They just they just picked it up and and parroted what other people were saying. In fact. Gotcha. Okay. Hopefully that helps answer that one, Cliff. Thanks, Jim. Next up. All right. So here's an occupant exposure potential. Uh, Sly here, Joe. Talk to listeners a little bit about what you've done here. Yeah, uh, a little bit complex. I apologize for that, but this gives us the cumulative percentiles uh, for ASPEN concentrations in properties without any water damage, properties with health complaints, with water damage, and with visible mold. And the first point I would like to make in the column under no water damage. The 95th percentile concentration was 750 spores per cubic meter. So this conforms uh, with the upper, upper limit of normal indoor air. So properties without water damage, typical indoor environments, had basically maximum mass pen concentrations of 750 spores per cubic meter, which is a number we were showing in our previous slides. Yes. Now, if we look at the column under water damage and look at the, the 73rd percentile concentration is the average occupant exposure, and that's what you would use to uh, compare occupant exposures. And the 95th percentile concentration is what you would use to compare worst case exposures. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the 70th percentile and 95th percentile ratios, for water damage versus no water damage, what we can say is, at least in these data, properties with water damage uh, had occupant exposures about five times greater than in properties without any water damage. Hmm. And the worst case exposures in water damaged properties were about 16 times greater than in properties without water damage. So now we can start to get a feel for just how bad the exposure potential is in water damaged properties versus non-water damaged properties. Gotcha. Okay, next. All right. Numerical guidelines and the California data. What are we talking about on this slide here, Joe? Well, what I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, if we're looking at normal indoor air, uh, properties without any water damage reported or, or observed, then 95% of those samples were less than 750 spores per cubic meter. So only 5% of samples from normal air are expected to be higher than that concentration. So that would be a, a rare event. Only 3% of samples from normal air are expected to be greater than 1,000 spores per cubic meter. And only 1% of samples from normal air are expected to be greater than 1,500 spores per cubic meter. So if we want to, uh, to come up with a definition of potentially contaminated indoor air, 
an S-pen concentration greater than 1,500 spores per cubic meter is almost certainly a sample that was collected from potentially contaminated indoor air. And that's based on the data that you've been uh, crunching numbers on here over the recent few years, I guess for even longer than that, huh? Well, based on the data we just presented, the table we just presented, yeah. Okay, next. All right, so your decision criteria now on indoor air, and we kind of just talked a little bit about this, but now you're kind of really breaking it down into uh, a little more detail. Well, it's not, yeah, it's just come, it's just a data table, decision table. So you can summarize all the discussion that we've had so far into this one uh, data table. So it gives a numerical guideline, less than 750 spores per cubic meter of ASP pen, uh, consistent with typical normal air. Greater than 1,500 spores per cubic meter, consistent with contaminated area. And the range between those two limits, use professional judgment. But decision criteria such as these gives us stable, consistent assessments between projects and between inspectors. And it also is the same criteria for the national and California data and for the aerosol and allergen D. So it, it's just self-consistent. Are you? Uh, but again, I was just going to say, are you continuing to collect data uh, for this particular uh, work you're doing or are you done with it? No, I'm not. But I, uh, again, I think it would, what I'm trying to do here is a, um, feasibility study, if you will. If it makes sense, then maybe some of us should get together or IAQA or someone should sponsor a study uh, with a little bit more broader uh, application. But to me, this seemed to work. So whether or not we put additional resources into something like this, I think it would be worthwhile. I agree with you, Joe. And I think most of the comments I'm seeing are are more about uh, geography and, uh, you know, personal history of their own sample results may or may not necessarily fall into this same uh, category or guidelines that you're, you're setting out here, these numerical guidelines. And, and I don't think you're saying this is the, the be all end all. We'd love to see more data incorporated into this. And if it changes the numbers around a little bit, so be it. Oh, absolutely. Um, all I'm trying to do is put out a feasibility on, on this study I would like to get people interested in looking at it in, in more depth and see if it does it does hold. So I, I, I'm probably not going to be able to get to many of the text questions, but I'm, I know Joe well enough to say you get your comments to him and I will guarantee he'll get back to you and give you uh, give you a response because I'm getting some real sure. nice uh, information. And if you don't mind, we'll give them your uh, email here at the end too, Joe, if that's okay with you. Sure, that'd be great. Yeah. All right. Next up. Um, another way of looking at it, I guess, Joe. Go ahead. Well, this is kind of a different concept. It's an interesting concept. Uh, <laughs> uh, the blue line is the distribution of Aspen concentrations in properties without any water damage. And the red line is the distribution in properties with water damage. Mm. The point I'm trying to make is this. If you have a reported concentration of 3,000 spores per cubic meter, it could only be a red sample. It could only be from potentially contaminated air. But if you have a sample result of 300 spores per cubic meter, it could be either a red sample or a blue sample. Mm. 
You don't know. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is you can interpret and you can assess sample results greater than, let's say, a 1,000 spores per cubic meter, just generically. But for concentrations less than that, you really can't tell whether the air is from a normal environment or a contaminated environment. Hmm. Rather tricky. And I notice you say potentially contaminated, Joe. I mean, if, if you've got a sample that's 25,000 spores per cubic meter of Aspen, it's potentially contaminated. Um, what kind of uh, situation would lead to that level in the air where maybe it wasn't necessarily contaminated? Uh, thinking of like maybe you sampled in a room and somebody dropped some clothing after skiing and it uh, sat for a week or two, and it got, well, I guess that is contaminated then, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's contaminated. Yeah, I, I'm just being conservative when I say potential, that's all. Okay. okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next up, John. All right, Joe, tell us about what you mean by here, identifying contaminated air. All right, this goes off the previous slide. Uh, so, what I'm saying is, if you have a sample result that's less than 750 spores per cubic meter, that's not a reliable indicator of condition because that sample could have been collected in either undamaged or water-damaged indoor spaces. And in fact, if you look at the previous slide, 57% of the assessments would have been false if you had assumed that a concentration of 300 spores per cubic meter was quote unquote normal from uncontaminated environments, you'd have been wrong 57% of the time. So what I'm saying is when you have a low concentration of Aspen, you can miss a contaminated environment if that's your only indicator of contamination. You have to be very careful with low concentrations of Aspen. And that was your, your key point and also the point behind talking about what a mold inspection involves. It's not just taking an air sample. Well, yeah, exactly. But even, even just interpreting air samples, you have to be careful with low concentrations. Interesting. So if you've got these... So a high concentration is positive, but a low concentration is uncertain. Interesting. Okay. All right. That's, I, I always think about home inspectors, Joe, when, I, when, we, when we talk about this, because, you know, these guys are they're in a tough situation. Uh, people are trying to hide whatever issues are in their home. They're trying to sell the home. And uh, they cover things up and so on and so forth. And the guys come in, and, and they're taught by some labs and some groups that, you know, if you take a couple of air samples, then you're kind of covering your butt. Um, but I don't think they really give them much in the way of um, interpretation of those air samples. Typically what will happen is then the homeowner will get that and the lab will put some generic interpretation on there and then um, it gets handed to somebody else and, and they say, what do I do about this? Any thoughts on that? Well, we're, it's outside the topic of this uh, this presentation, but the number of samples, I mean, if you walk into a house and take one sample, I don't care if it's an air sample or a surface sample or any type of sample, that's not characterizing the entire house very effectively. Uh, what I recommend doing, if you have a limited number of samples that you can take, um, 
I mean, <laughs> better than nothing is to take a composite sample. Take take a single air cell and take a, a four or five minute sample in three different rooms, for example, oh, okay. uh, with using one air cell. Mm-hmm. At least that gives you a little bit better coverage. I got um, that's what I would suggest. Okay. And I think that's a, a topic for another show, Joe, is, you know, what do these poor home inspectors do out there? I mean, uh, I, I think they're caught in a very difficult situation. All right. Sure. So next slide. Uh, or is this it here? What is the concentration? All right. Joe, let's talk about this one. All right. This is a, looking at the potential for health effects. Uh, so what is the concentration of airborne mold spores at which we expect adverse health effects to begin to occur? I think that's a relevant question. And using this methodology, we can at least uh, begin to look at it. Next slide. Here we go. All right. And and, uh, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but in the field of toxicology, there's something called the no-observed effect level, the NOEL for an exposure. And this is the maximum dose with no observed adverse health effects. Um, For example, you can expose someone to 8,000 spores and they say no, no reaction whatsoever. And you expose them to 10,000 spores, and they say, yeah, I've got watery eyes, I've got an itchy nose, post-nasal drip, etc." So 8,000 spores per cubic meter, I'm sorry, 8,000 spores would be the Noel level for that exposure. So that's what we're talking about. And it has been reported, for example, that for penicillium chrysogenum, the Noel is 8,000 spores. And you can use this to calculate the airborne concentration equivalent to that exposure. And this is the average concentration, not the single sample concentration, but the average concentration at which there is the initiation of adverse health effects for exposure to penicillium chrysogenum. So it's kind of a threshold concentration. And that's what we're going to be talking about. All right. Next up, John. Here we go, Joe. Occupant exposure. Okay. All right. So when does the assessment of occupant exposure become relevant? That is, when should the inspector start thinking uh, in terms of occupant exposure? And it depends on the time of exposure. For example, EPA estimates that 90% of our time is is spent indoors. So if you have a stay-at-home person, they spend about 21 hours a day in their home. And the average concentration for penicillium chrysogenum that would create the Noel exposure is about 1,100 spores per cubic meter. If you have someone who goes to work or goes to school and they're only in the home for like 13 hours a day, it's around 1,700 spores per cubic meter. Hmm. Now, those specific concentrations in themselves aren't very relevant and they, they're going to change all over the place. But what is important to me, at least, is the order of magnitude. We're talking about one to 2,000 spores per cubic meter, not 10 to 20,000, not 100 to 200,000, mm-hmm. but one to 2,000 spores per cubic meter. Okay. So I think that's important. If we look at the average concentrations in what I call the national data, in the 117 homes that were sampled in the national database, mm-hmm. all right, 40% of those homes exceeded 1,100 spores per cubic meter and 30% of them exceeded 1,700 spores per cubic meter. So this is not an uncommon situation where we should be looking at or at least anticipating occupant exposure potentials. Sure. All right. Next up. 
All right, here we go, Joe. What works for socks? Yeah, this is, again, my opinion, but if, if we're looking at a sample interpretation method and, and whether or not it works, I think it should have at least the following characteristics. It should give us the significance of the sample result. It should tell us whether that result is high, low, or average. It should have objective decision criteria upon which we can base the assessment that's independent of our training experience or bias. It should be consistently applied across projects uh, and between inspectors to arrive at a consistent assessment of condition. And it should have a stable basis for assessment. For example, the distribution versus indoor-outdoor comparisons. Okay, next up. And so in my, yeah, in my opinion, uh, the distribution method meets these criteria. It provides the significance of results. It gives us numerical guidelines and decision criteria. Yeah, it's objective. It's based on transitional concentrations. You can agree or disagree, but I can tell you what the criteria are, and we can at least argue about them. It can be consistently applied across projects and between inspectors. It has a stable basis of comparison based on a robust database with large sample size. And finally, it can be applied to special use environments such as uh, remediation containments, hospital ORs, et cetera. Interesting. Next. Okay. So this is the answer, huh? <laughs> well, it's not the answer, but I'm just saying uh, what I was saying before, the distribution method is, is not something I just made up. Uh, again, I was taught this method as a second-year graduate student, student uh, 50 years ago. Um, it's well-established. Uh, American Industrial Hygiene Association has published uh, at least six books on this topic describing how to do it and how to use it, and these are like the, the last three that were published. So it's not just a concept that's brand new. It's, it's a very old concept, very established concept. Fantastic, Joe. Let's go to the next one, John. I think we're getting uh, distribution method is also recommended in these documents. I think we talked a little bit about that, Joe. Yeah, again, uh, by our aerosols, it just basically states, uh, this is a quote, a single pair of indoor-outdoor samples cannot be interpreted. Uh, you need a distribution of samples to interpret the sample results. Uh, so they basically tell us in plain words that you really cannot interpret uh, one or two samples. Uh, and again, it's, it's based by the uh, Exposure Assessment Committee at EIHA. Uh, the only issue is IAQA's position on this. Uh, they do have a body of knowledge document on the website. And if you read it closely, uh, you would almost have to adopt the distribution method to comply with it, but there really is no uh, no position. No, uh, nothing really backing that up, huh? Nope, I don't think so. I don't either. Next up, summary, Joe. Let's tie it all together here. Well, the summary is uh, option one, we can do nothing, just continue to use indoor-outdoor comparisons and live with subjective inconsistent assessments. Or we can choose to use the distributions I presented here, uh, which is not the best option. Uh, we can have each uh, inspector do their own distributions, which I don't think is going to happen. But what I would like to see happen is an organization like IAQA or some working group um, gather data from various inspectors, uh, construct distributions and criteria, and then make them available to, to their stakeholders. 
And if we could do that, I think the industry would uh, progress somewhat. Sounds like a reasonable uh, goal to me, Joe. Uh, and John, do we, is there any other uh, last one? That's the last one. That's the last one. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you joining us. Cliff, was there anything you wanted to uh, ask or add? Um, I, I guess just, just one thing, Joe. In, like, looking at all the data, um, I, I'm trying to figure out how you kind of – I know you learned this in second-year graduate school, but by looking at the data, it would seem that you – would notice these clusters. And I guess the question is, did we then back into the, did we then back into the answer? You, you follow me? The, the does answer the questions, essentially the clusters. So did, when you start out, started out trying to establish this, you had all this data and you knew what you were looking for. Then all of a sudden you see these clusters. And then is that when like the light bulb went off and said, bingo, uh, you know, that was the epiphany moment. I don't, I'm not quite following. Uh, there weren't, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about when you say clusters. Um, well, I, first of all, I didn't start out with any, with any conception. Okay. Uh, I did want to look at this. I, I, uh, to me, Indoor outdoor comparisons just didn't make any sense, right. and I, I'm I'm reluctant to re rely upon them to assess condition because it's so variable. Um, and if you don't have a stable basis of comparison, how I, we're really assessing the variability of the outdoor air rather than the condition of the indoor space. So I was looking for a methodology that made more scientific sense, not just historical sense. Understood. So I'm not sure I backed into it. I just, I was aware of this methodology. I've applied it to many environmental contaminants. Mold is just a 10 micron particle. So why not apply it? Yeah. Okay, good. Joe, I'm wondering, um, did the, when you crunched all the numbers, did this data surprise you at all? Did you kind of have in the back of your mind anyway, and you've done your own, distribution from your own samples, I'm sure. Um, did it compare favorably there, too? Well, yeah, no, it did surprise me. When, when you do the, uh, the plot that I showed, um, where you have a transitional concentration, what you would expect and what I expected to get was just a straight line with no break in the curve. I see. I did not expect to get that break. Uh, it should have been just a straight line. If you do this for chemicals, for like TVOCs, you just get a straight line. There's no break in the curve at all. Hmm. So when I got this break for mold spores, uh, it was a surprise to me. Interesting. I was not looking for it. I did not expect it. Oh, fantastic. Joe, I've got lots of great comments here. Um, you know, uh, folks saying, when are we going to bring you back? And uh, I'm sure we'll be able to do that uh, in the not too distant future. But I want to thank you for, I know you and I spent a lot of time making sure we got this right. And I think it came out really well. And we appreciate you joining us again this week on IAQ Radio. Well, thank you for having me. And I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is Rick speak, gentlemen. <laughs> saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Joe Spurgeon, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, to John, you got to have faith at the controls. John, no glitches. Well done from at home. Uh, we worked on it pretty hard, and you were able to pull it off. 
And, of course, to our growing group of loyal listeners, thank you all so much. Uh, next Friday, we're going to have a flashback. I'll be out of town uh, doing a course, and then we'll be back in two weeks with the next live program. So come back next week, check out our flashback, and two weeks from now, we'll be back live with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 